Hello class, this is your Professor Debbie and welcome back to True Crime University. We're going to finish up talking about the Gardner Museum heist, finish a few details of the uh, the heist that I didn't talk about yet and talk a, a little bit about the investigation by the Boston Police and the FBI and then we're going to talk about suspects and theories as to who did it and where the art is. And then at the very end, stick around if you want, and I'll tell you more in detail about the paintings that were stolen. So I gave in a timeline of everything that happened during the heist, during the 81 minutes, what the thieves did, where they went, and so forth. But it's better to hear it from a guy named Anthony Amore, and he is the current director of security at the Gardner Museum. And in this audio clip that I have, he sits down with the news and gives a description of what happened. Only, um, like I said, I, I think it sounds better coming from him. So here is Mr. Amore. We know they came in at 124, the motion sensor readout tells us, because the doors were connected to it. But then there's nothing until 148, which is insane. What we do know is that's when they came in when they spoke to the guards, um, when they took them into the basement and tied them up there, and then came upstairs. Without question, there's no way that took 24 minutes. Talk about a five or six minute endeavor, max. What we don't know is when they went into the blue room to take Shea Tony. That could have been the first room they entered, we don't know, because no motion sensors on the first floor went off that night. So it's difficult to say when that was taken. Now we see the thieves on the second floor, which you can see what's clear is they went right to the Dutch room. And we can tell by the way the frames are on the floor that they went for the two big Rembrandts first. So they're in the Dutch room, and my belief is at this point, they're taking frames off the wall. It's now 1.50. Two minutes have passed. Two minutes is a long time in a theft. Now we see definitive movement. Second floor hall, early Italian room, to the short gallery. That's when he's going towards the Degas and the Finial. The other guy's still in the Dutch room. My belief is he's probably going to work taking the paintings out of frames. So time is passing, 154. Now he heads back, probably helping him take something apart. Eight minutes past two in the morning, and now there's movement again in that stairwell outside of the Dutch room. And then he goes back to the short gallery, what, to finish the job there? Probably. Maybe he was in the midst of looking at the stuff there. Maybe he had started taking the Napoleonic finial down. Maybe he went for the flag first and was working on unscrewing it. We have the thief having left the Dutch room. He's in the middle of the hallway. Or maybe he's just, as you said, poked his head out mm -hmm. and called him back. Because the next minute at 2.10, our thief is back in the Dutch room. Right. It's 2.12. And now they're not setting off alarms in the galleries. How would you account for that, that no motion sensors would have been tripped that night? I can't. I literally don't know what happened. All I do know is that the alarms were working. And no alarms went off on the first floor between the time the thieves entered and the time they exited. That's indisputable. When a painting is stolen, it's not a mystery. Knowing that a thief went into the room is not a great clue, right? I mean, the empty frame is a better clue. They didn't do it anywhere else in the museum. They set off the motion sensors hundreds of times on the second floor with reckless abandon. Why would they care about the blue room? I don't believe that they tried to defeat that alarm and the alarm didn't go off and I just cannot account for it. So here we are at 20 past 2, and there are no alarms on the second floor at all. Right. Now they're in the second floor hall again, so they might have been down the stairs. You think they were checking on the guards in the basement? Most likely. But he's heading back. Probably They were probably together. Now they're in the Dutch. And so now we are all the way at 2.27 in the morning, and, and the only alarm here is in the, in the hallway at the that's stairs. That's the last alarm. And that's the last one. That's them leaving the galleries. And now they're gone. Oh my goodness. Right, but they don't leave until 2.41. Interior door opens and closes. Exterior door opens and closes. So someone departs. And then at 2.45, the second guy open close from inside, open close outside door. So now they're gone. A couple details that I forgot to tell you about the heist. In the Dutch room, I told you that they took a small... Rembrandt self-portrait and it was a like a sketch you know a drawing and they I told you how they thought how weird it was that they 
took all that time to screw it off the wall. Well, they also had a really big Rembrandt self-portrait in there. It was an actual painting. They took that off the wall, but then they leaned it against a piece of furniture or the wall or something. And like they were going to take it, they planned to take it, but they either forgot it or the staff and investigators thought that what was more likely was that it was too big to take and to fit in wherever that they had to, to fit it. Because remember, I don't know if you remember, I told you at the beginning, the car that the two so-called Boston police officers were seen sitting in before the robbery was a smaller hatchback. So very likely that they just didn't think it would fit. And the Napoleonic Eagle finial, they strangely did not finish unscrewing that. They just kind of, I don't know how they got it off, if they cut it or whatever. But they, investigators theorized that they were just out of time. So supposedly they did have some kind of idea of time, even though they were in there in an extraordinary long time, which was 81 minutes. They still had some sense telling them that, you know, we better wrap this up. We've been here too long. Now, I already told you that the museum had no theft insurance. So what they did was the board members solicited some auction houses, such as Christie's and so forth, for reward money. And they were able to get a million dollars. They got an additional $19 million and the reward totaled $20 million. And, and this would be for any information leading up to the capture of who took paintings or the return of the paintings themselves. And as I understand, the stipulation was that it had to be all of them. You couldn't just say, oh, I know where Shea Tortoni is. It had, was like an all or nothing deal. But that's a moot point now because the reward has expired. There was actually an expiration date on it. Interestingly, as a side note, $20 million was the largest reward ever offered in any kind of crime ever until 2001 when the United States government offered a bounty on Osama bin Laden which was $25 million. And I think we can agree that the capture of him was probably more important than the capture of these art thieves. So money well spent. The FBI has its own specialized unit that investigates stolen art, believe it or not. And they had 30 investigators on this case. The first one they had was Dan Felzone, and now they have agent Jeff Kelly, who's been on the case, and we're going to hear from him a little bit later. As with most thefts, especially in a museum, it's kind of obvious that you would start with the guards first because, you know, they were there. They gave them both polygraphs. Randy passed his, that's the older guy. Rick, that's the like stoner guy. His was said to be inconclusive. And throughout the investigation, the FBI learned that the security in general was pretty lax and that the guards were not, we're not talking about Rick, just leave him out of the picture. All of the guards had a habit of letting people into the museum when they weren't supposed to. Their friends, food deliveries, I guess they would tell their friends, hey, I'm working at the museum, it's really boring, why don't you come in and we'll party, or, I mean, God knows who was in that museum doing what. So, when, when you look back on it, it is, it would, would have been a wonder if this place wasn't robbed. They had hundreds of leads. And they put, you know how the FBI has all kinds of informants, people who know stuff. So they, they put out these like feelers in the art community. And there actually is an underground black market art community that goes around the world. And the mob has a big part of this. There were no leads until 1994. And at this time, the director of the museum, Ann Hawley, gets a letter, and it's postmarked New York City, and it was basically a ransom note. It said that the writer of the letter was an intermediary between the thieves, and that he or she had access to the art, and they were basically saying, well, you know, if Yin's meaning the museum gives us 
$2.6 million and agree not to prosecute us, then we will connect you with the art. And they provided some information that was what you call holdback information. And I've talked about that before. If you remember, it's information about a crime that the police hold back so that they don't have false confessions. Well, they had some inside information. And I heard in one source what it was, but I decided to discount it because I have a rule about research. If I only hear information from one source and nowhere else, I throw it out because for me, it has to be corroborated by at least two sources. And I'm not going to bother with this bit of information because I, I can't count on it. But anyway, they supposedly had inside information that was correct. So the FBI, they did what they were told to do in the letter. They put a signal in a certain edition of the Boston Globe, and the letter writer wrote back to Ann Hawley, and they said, um, well, you know, we, we're not sure. We, we kind of, we don't know what to do because we know the FBI's in this, and we're, we got to think about it for a while, and we'll contact you again. And, you know, at least we'll give you clues to where the paintings are. But they never heard from these people again. And to this day, they don't know if this was a hoax or not. The letter said that the paintings were safe in a controlled environment, but that the museum had to hurry because there was a buyer in another country that wanted them. Just by the facts in the letter, the FBI determined that whoever wrote it had some inside knowledge about art in the art world. So, you know, that, that speaks a little bit more to it being legitimate. And interestingly, the uh, letter mentioned that the art was in a controlled environment. You know how a lot of times documents and old manuscripts and things that should be protected, they are in an environmentally controlled space that controls heat, light, temperature, so forth. Well, the Isabella Stort Gardner Museum was so cheap that it didn't even have this it probably does now, but at the time, it didn't even have a controlled environment. So, the, ironically, the paintings were probably better off wherever they were, because at least they were in a safe environment. The FBI thought that they knew three things about the heist. That it was done by organized crime, that the art was going to be used as bargaining chips for criminals, such as... Uh, you know, some mafia person's been arrested and they're trying to get out of whatever it is that they were caught for. And they're like, hey, you know, if Yen's giving me immunity for prosecution, I will tell you where a Rembrandt from the Gardner heist is. Apparently that type of thing was commonly done. Like art was stolen and used as bargaining chips, which I never knew. But then again, I never uh, pretended to know a whole lot about organized crime. And they also thought that, as did I, that the thieves were not interested in art themselves. They weren't the ones calling the shots. They were just pawns. They were just taking orders from somebody higher. Before we get into suspects, of which there are a lot, I'm going to tell you one other tidbit about the investigation. You know the FBI is involved, so this is, in early days, it was mostly handled by the Boston police, and then because the FBI has the specialized art theft unit, then they pretty much take over. And it, it seems a lot of times when you have more than one jurisdiction that they kind of fight over territory. The FBI said the Boston police screwed up. The Boston police said the FBI screwed up. And I definitely have an opinion on which organization dropped the ball. But uh, I'll just tell you this little story and let you decide for yourself. Remember at the beginning of the story, I told you about the young man and woman who were outside on the street and they saw the two cops sitting in the car and they said they, they got a pretty good look at them. So they came forward to the Boston police and they described them and they pointed to one of their coats that was hanging up and 
They said they had on coats with hatches that said Boston Police, you know, that looked just like that. And they said the police were like totally uninterested, like they acted like they were bothering them and didn't take any contact information from them, never called them back, which is pretty bizarre because here you have literally two eyewitnesses to the suspects in the biggest heist in the century and nobody takes their contact information or talks to them again um okay so yeah who dropped the ball there anyway there are a lot of suspects and i'll start out with the ones that came to attention earlier and then i'm gonna end with who the fbi and everybody else thinks in all likelihood the actual suspects or the actual perpetrators are now, the first name to come up was a dude named Miles Connor. He was well-known in criminal circles, and he was described as a musician slash art thief. Yeah, I heard that right. Kind of a strange mixture of um, interests, I guess you would say. He had robbed several museums. He got in a shootout with the police. He pulled a lot of what you would call crazy stunts. He claimed that he had done 30 art heists. He started a rock band and he uh, schmoozed with mob bosses in the Boston area. He admitted to casing the Gardner Museum, but unfortunately, or fortunately for him, he was in prison at the time of the heist. And Tony Amore, the head of security at the Gardner, thinks that he was definitely not involved. Another name that comes up often that you may have heard of is Whitey Bulger. He was known as Boston's top mob boss, head of what they call the Winter Hill Gang, and he was kind of the head of the Irish-American mob in the area, and he was also an FBI informant. He kind of played both sides, if you know what I mean, like a double agent. He would get intelligence on what was going on um, and give it to the FBI in order to save his own self, which he found that he had to do quite a bit. He supposedly knew everything and everybody in Boston, all the dirt that was going on. If there was a crime, either Whitey was involved in it or he knew about it. He was convicted on 19 counts of murder and he was killed in prison in 2018. Supposedly, he denied knowing anything about the Gardner heist and this irritated him because the biggest heist to date had occurred in his own backyard and he wasn't in on it. So this didn't make him happy and supposedly he had his people investigate and tried to find out who did this and where the art was and was not successful. Plus there was no, no kind of evidence tying him to the heist. Another name that came up was Brian McDevitt, and he's another one with multiple um, talents, I guess you would say. He was a con man, art thief, and screenwriter. Yeah, that's uh, kind of an odd combination. In 1981, him and a partner tried to rob the Hyde Collection in Glens Falls, New York. That's another art museum. And what they did was they hijacked a FedEx truck. Their ruse, or their what they planned to do, was don the FedEx uniforms and pose as delivery people to get into the museum. So they tie up the real FedEx driver with duct tape, and he's sitting in the, the truck. So <laughs> they got caught in traffic. There was a, apparently a traffic jam, and they abandoned their uh, attempt at the heist. Later, the FedEx driver identified them, and that's how they were caught. Now, what, what made him suspicious besides the M.O. of the uniforms and the, the tie that gored up with duct tape, Brian McDevitt was living in Boston during the heist, 
and he moved to California real soon after. The FBI questioned him about it several times, and he also testified before a grand jury about it, but nothing ever came of it. Supposedly, his fingerprints didn't match those found at the scene, and he moved to Columbia, not Columbia, South Carolina, but Columbia, the South American country, where he died in 2004. And another, this person isn't really a suspect, but his name is Arthur Brand. He's a Dutch private investigator, and he's known as the Indiana Jones of the art world. I don't know if he gave himself that name or somebody else did. But what he did is, is he infiltrates groups. I remember I told you there's around the world, there's like a black market for art. Well, he somehow gets his way into these groups and tries to track down stolen art. And he said that he had two leads on this heist. One of them was a Dutch thief and the other one involved the IRA. And one of the places that I was reading, I, I read and listen to so much information on this, I can't even keep straight what I heard from where. But whoever it was said, it might have even been Whitey Bulger. They said that this is not something that the IRA would be involved in. They're not interested in art. Their main interest is guns. And stealing art is more something that the Italian mob would be interested in. So the next name I have, and from now on, these are going to be almost exclusively Boston Mafia people. David Turner. He was involved with the Boston Mafia, especially a guy named Carmelo Merlino, and we'll talk about him more later. But he supposedly became an enforcer, or like a, a bully, I guess you would say. And FBI informants said that David Turner claimed to have access to the art stolen from the museum. There was even word that he was one of the two thieves involved. In 1999, he and Merlino were arrested for attempting to rob an armored car facility. And David Turner served 21 years. He got out in 2019. Agents told him that if he knew where the art was, he could get leniency, but he insisted that he didn't know. At the time, he was sentenced to 38 years. So I'm thinking 38 years is a really long time uh, to be thinking that you're going to be in prison for. If he did know something, now was the time to speak up, and he said he didn't. So just take that for what you will. Okay, the next person to introduce you to in this saga is Vincent Ferrara, and I don't have a whole lot to say about him. His nickname is The Animal. Don't know why, don't know if I want to know. He is a Boston mobster and the former capo. Supposedly that is some kind of a rank in the mafia. I guess they have like rankings. Don't know how that works, I'm not Italian. Of the Patriarcha crime family. He's 72 now. And on March 22nd of 1990, which would be like two or three days after the heist, him and six other members of his um, family were indicted on a number of charges like racketeering, murder, extortion, etc., etc., sentenced to 22 years. He served 16 and was released in 2005. Now, the next person on the list is Bobby Donati. Him and his twin brother Richard were born in 1940. They were also part of this Patriarcha crime family, which, of course, was the same as Vincent Ferrara, who we just talked about. His name is also often heard as being one of the two thieves. In 1990, at the time of the heist, he would have been 50, and supposedly the word was that the motive behind the heist was to get Miles Connor, remember him, that's the uh, older guy that was an art thief slash musician, and Vincent Ferrara out of jail. Bobby Donati joined Ferrara's gang, and he was promoted again, another job, I guess, in the mob, was driver. So he, um, I guess, drove 
people to and from ICE or whatever else it is that they did. Ferrara and two others were arrested in November of 1989 on a total of 57 counts of murder, racketeering, loan sharking, etc., etc., in Connecticut. Supposedly, Bobby Donati proposed the idea of robbing something to get either money or stuff such as art to exchange for Vincent Ferrara's release. We don't know if Bobby Donati or anybody else ever reached out to the authorities on um, Vincent's behalf. The FBI, for whatever reason, won't discuss it. According to a friend, shortly after the heist, Bobby Donati came to a hangout in Revere, Massachusetts, which is kind of near Boston, with a paper bag that contained, guess what? No, not paintings. That's a good guess, though, but that's not, that's not it. What it was, was two Boston police uniforms. So that's pretty incriminating. Bobby Donati was a close friend of a, a guy named, I know this is really confusing, all these names, Bobby Garanti, whose wife told the FBI that she had seen several of the stolen paintings hanging in hanging in Bobby Garante's wall, but that he gave them to a guy named Bobby Gentile. Not only are, are there too many people, there's too many mobsters, and there's too many Bobbies. You need a scorecard to keep track of all these people. According to Bobby Donati's FBI file, the only thing ties him that ties him to the heist is that a there was for for whatever reason a team of agents following him before his death. So, I mentioned Bobby Garante. We'll talk a little bit about him. He is, to nobody's surprise, a mobster and a convicted bank robber. The FBI thinks that he most likely had the art at one time and supposedly gave it to Bobby Gentile, who we'll talk about in a minute. Bobby Garante is a Boston native. He has an extensive criminal history dating to the 1950s. He was supposedly the right-hand man of a guy named Carmelo Merlino. Bobby died in 2004 of cancer. And the FBI think that he was definitely somehow involved in the heist. Not necessarily in the act itself, but that at least he had the art at one time. Bobby Gentile. <laughs> I know, I know, this is crazy, all these Bobbies. And, okay. He is now 87, and he is said to be the last surviving person of interest in the museum heist. In 2005, the FBI came to his Connecticut house on a tip. They had a search warrant and they were looking for the art. They, you know, had heard that it might be there. So what they found was a, sh a shed out in his yard with a hole under it, a hidden hole. And in the hole, they found an empty, big Rubbermaid container. And they're like, hmm, we wonder what used to be in here. And I don't know exactly when this happened, but Bobby's son told the FBI that one time they had a flood and whatever was in that hole got flooded and that his dad was really upset about the ruining of whatever had been in that hole. He reportedly failed a polygraph about uh, his knowledge of the stolen art. And he made the quote, the feds ruined my life. He admits that he was a, quote, tough guy, but he denies being an actual mafia member. So that brings us to Carmelo Merlino. Yes, he's another Boston-based mobster. He owned a car repair shop in Dorchester, which is like a suburb of Boston. In 1991, the feds bugged this shop um, because they thought obviously he was into some shady business like maybe knew about the heist but unfortunately all of a sudden he stopped talking at least in the office about shady things and they think somebody for some reason they think it was whitey bulger tipped him off he was arrested in 1999 for the botch heist of the Loomis Fargo Company, and sentenced to 47 years in prison. He died 
at age 71 in prison of natural causes. He was offered leniency if he admitted to knowing anything about the heist, and he wasn't buying it. He said that he didn't know anything. He did, however, this is what he told the feds, but to other people, he bragged about knowing where the art was, and he's supposedly the mastermind of the, uh, the heist. In 2006, a guy named Robert Beauchamp wrote a letter to Tony Amore, you know, the head of security, and he claims that his ex-cellmate, a guy named George Reisfelder, told him that he was involved in the heist. So now we're getting down to the real deal. In 2013, the FBI announced they said, quote, with a high degree of confidence, end quote, that they knew who had committed the robbery. But strangely, they didn't say the names. But it, it, it's sort of like a, what do you call that, a badly kept secret that everybody knows the names. The two thieves were the aforementioned George Reisfeller and a guy named Leonard DiMuzio. And I have pictures of both of them, and I have a, I guess you call it a collage. It's like pictures of both of them right next to the sketches of the suspects. And I will just let you decide for yourself if you think they look similar. George Reisfelder was a friend of Berlino, who, remember, is supposedly the, the mastermind of this. He had a record of armed robbery and domestic abuse. And soon after the heist, he was found dead in a Quincy apartment. Quincy's a, like a suburb of Boston. Dead from an overdose of cocaine. But um, a lot of people think that he was murdered. Leonard DiMuzio didn't know a whole lot about him other than he was killed in June of 1991, supposedly by David Turner. So all these names are interconnected. And... Now this other name pops up, and I promise this is the last name I'm going to say. There's another guy named Charles Pappas, who was believed to be the third member of this crew, meaning maybe the driver or something. He was also killed after acting as an FBI informant on the heist. He was supposedly ambushed by two men, and nobody knows who they were, at the age of 27 in November of 1995. So... I have a little news clip from CNN that I'll play. They're discussing the FBI's announcement of the, the uh, you know, that, that they've solved a mystery. And you can tell it's CNN because the woman says Anderson and she's talking to Anderson Cooper, you know, the, what do you call him, the newscaster on CNN. So here's that clip. Randy joins us now. I mean, this is really one of the biggest mysteries in, in, the, in the history of the art world. They finally do have a lead on what happened? That's what they're saying now. Investigators are saying that the big news today is that they've seen the artwork. They have confirmed sightings of the artwork. And this is a really big deal, as you said, because this art is worth at least... $500 million. And for years, investigators have feared that, well, maybe whoever took it put it in a basement or an attic, maybe mm. for safekeeping, and maybe that person died or got killed if they were a bad person, and it was never to be found. So this is a really big break. I mean, I remember last year, investigators had said that there was a there was a break. They'd identified the suspects. They didn't actually name them. Have they? What are they saying today? They are naming them now. Three suspects, two of which are, are dead. One is Carmelo Merlino. He died in prison. And what investigators are saying is that he talked with undercover FBI agents many, many years ago and told them that he had some of this artwork, including the Rembrandt that we just saw there. And he said that he was going to return it to the museum and ask for the reward. Well, that never happened. Another person they're naming now is Robert Gentile. He's actually alive in prison on another charge. He has always said that he had nothing to do with this. But Anderson, they did search his home years ago on drug charges. And they said that they found items that they believe mm -hmm. relates him to the museum heist. Items like a police badge, wow. clothing with a police um, insignia on it, handcuffs, scanners, two-way radios, things that might have been used. Because remember... Name? There was a third name. I don't have it right okay. here with me, but that person is also it's dead also as dead. well. And the next to last thing I want to talk about is Rick, the security guard. I know there's been a lot of suspicion. His name keeps coming up and keeps coming up. 
And everybody finds all these reasons to suspect him. And he was supposedly cleared by the FBI. He's now in his 50s. He lives in Vermont. He graduated from college in 2010. He works as a teacher's aide. He's married and has two kids. And he doesn't usually like publicity, but he did give an interview with NPR in 2015. And he said, quote, even if they get the paintings back, they'll never be the same, and I feel horrible about that. I don't want to be remembered for this alone. I'd like to be remembered for the good things I've done. I'm a husband, a father of two really cool kids, but they're saying it's half a billion dollars worth of artwork, and ultimately I'm the one who made this, the decision to buzz them in. It's the kind of thing most people don't have to learn to cope with. It's like doing penance. It's always there. End quote. And I can't help but feel bad for the dude. He's like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. He was like a hippie, a stoner. He's, okay, he didn't, maybe he wasn't happy at his job. He thought it was bored. The security was lax. But does that make him a uh, a thief? I mean, <laughs> that's a big stretch. And one of the other, remember I, I mentioned about the one painting and we heard from, I, I think, Tony Mori about the mystery of the Shea Tortoni, the painting in the Blue Room, and how it was taken without setting off the alarms on either side. A lot of people think that Rick took it on his rounds when he went through the Blue Room and checked everything out, you know, as he was supposed to do, that he just picked up the painting. But there's a couple issues with that. And like one of the other guards, I, I don't know the person's name, it doesn't matter, but he said, quote, Rick, take that painting? No way. What's he going to do with it? End quote. Which is, is my point. Like, what was he going to do with this painting? Where would he put it? Was he going to put it on himself somewhere? It, it was small as paintings go, but it's still too big to like put in his pocket or something. How was he going to get it out of the museum? Does he, did he think he was going to hide it somewhere and get it later? When the police and FBI came, they, they searched the whole museum. Surely they were, would find it. And, I mean, the idea of him strolling out of the museum somehow with this very famous painting that everybody knows is stolen is just laughable. Did he think he was, would sell it or hang that up in his apartment? Come on. It's just, it's just crazy to me. And there's some other conspiracy theories. And I have this on my social media. I told you that the two guards, Rick and Randy, were duct taped. Randy was handcuffed to a pipe. Rick was sitting on a workbench. People are saying that in the photo of him with a, sitting there with the duct tape on his head, that he doesn't look like he's been sitting there for hours and that he had a complete lack of distress or dishevelment or signs of struggling. Um, okay, my argument is watch somebody who's been sitting there for several hours look like. Like, I mean, it just doesn't... Again, people like to make conspiracies out of everything. It's, I guess they think it's a hobby. There's a... In the, in the picture that I have, I don't know if you can tell, but he's smiling in the picture. And the people are like, look at him, he's smiling. It's like, well, we don't know anything about the circumstances under which that photo was taken. When it was taken, who took it? I'm supposing it was a member of the police. Um, could it be that he was smiling because somebody finally came to rescue him? That'd make me smile. Did they say, okay, we're going to take a picture now? And to be, I guess, kind of a smart ass, he smiled. I mean, no, we don't know. And we can't speculate on that. That's just ridiculous. And um, I was listening to a, I don't know if it was a podcast or if it was on YouTube. It doesn't matter. And I wouldn't give the name of it, even if I did remember. But they were literally picking apart, piece by piece, this picture of Rick. And they're like, look at him smiling. Yeah, he's the, he's shady. And look, he's he's this and that. Look at that duct tape. Like, analyzing every minute bit of the picture and how he was sitting and how his face was and how the tape was. I'm like, are you serious? 
get a life. You know, find a hobby. And um, I just wanted to share with you my own thoughts on this. Um, I totally think, like, if I had money, I would put money on this. And, you know, everybody knows I'm not, I don't pretend to be Nancy Drew or solve cases. I'm just a podcaster and I'm just, just spouting out my own theory. You can agree with it or not. And it doesn't matter. Um, all these people involved are dead. The most likely suspects, who of course are that um, George and Lenny, they're both dead, and so is is Carmelo Merlino. Rob Fisher, the assistant U.S. attorney who was in charge of the case, said that it was hard to believe that these thieves had no prior knowledge that the they would be allowed in the museum. And I am like sure that somebody on the inside knew something. And I'm not saying Rick. It doesn't even have to be a security guard. It could have been anybody. And I looked it up. And right now, the museum has 270 employees. That's a lot of employees. Back then, 30 years ago, I have no idea what it was. Figure it was smaller. But still, I mean, think of all the people that work at a museum. There's like the curators, people who know about art. There's security. There's like janitors and maintenance and stuff like that. There's office people because we know that Isabella Gardner used to live on the fourth floor. Now that's all offices. So that floor is, is filled with people doing whatever kind of work that you do in keeping the museum afloat. Then you have a board of directors. You might have trustees. You see my point is there's a lot of people that are somehow connected with the museum. So we have these people come in. And like a U.S. Attorney Fisher said, he finds it very hard to believe that they didn't know that they were going to get in. Because, okay, I've thought about this case and thought about it. And whoever did this had balls. They had balls and they had knowledge. Remember the very, one of the very first things, as soon as they came in and they handcuffed the two guards, they led them to the basement, as in they already knew where the basement was. And it's funny because I had my, uh, when I had my dental surgery, that was July 19th, I stayed up the, all night the night before because, well, I usually do, but I was working on this case. I was doing the research the night before, and um, when I'm nervous, I talk, and my mom picked me up to take me to the dentist and it was about a 15 minute ride and I talked non-stop I was like blah 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 all the way until they took me actually took me in to have the surgery and I was talking about this case I would just not shut up about it and I told her everything I would had learned because I was fascinated by it by this time and I said don't you think it had to be an inside job and I don't know if she just wanted to shut me up or whatever but she said yeah but, okay, they're going on the assumption that each piece of artwork is some get-out-of-jail card for some mobster, right? But logic tells you that they would take the most expensive pieces, like the Rape of Europa, which was on the third floor. They never went up to the third floor. When they passed the Raphael Room and the early Italian Renaissance Room, they literally walked right past some of the most expensive works in the museum and went right for, I don't want to say junk, but stuff that was significantly lower in value. And what my thinking is, we already know that they were working for somebody and we're pretty sure it was Carmelo Merlino. But was Carmelo a... Um, Somebody who's interested in art can't, can't, can't see that. I don't know. I'm thinking that somewhere along the line, an art collector is involved. Of course, a dirty art collector, but somebody who, we'll go over this more when we talk about exactly what was taken. Obviously, they had a thing for Rembrandt and Degas, because those are the two main artists whose stuff was stolen. And it's like they purposely looked for the Rembrandts and the Degas. And I can picture some art collector somewhere. And there was, I'm sure there is now, but I'm sure there was back then too, a brochure on the museum that showed 
uh, Dutch room, you know, these are the works that are in the Dutch room, or even anybody who'd been there numerous times would just know what's there. And I can see this collector writing down, okay, I want the storm on the Sea of Galilee, I want the concert, I want this and that, and this and that, and writing, writing like a shopping list, and passing it down to the thieves and saying, here, go get me this, this art. It was organized, it was planned. I even think that they did it on purpose on the morning. Actually, the, this was a Sunday morning. Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade is always on a Sunday, which I just recently learned. And I told you that um, Boston is really into celebrating St. Patrick's Day. I think they knew that the police would be otherwise occupied with St. Patrick's Day partiers, and I have no way to know this. I'm just throwing this out. We already know these people are, of course, probably mob-connected, probably dirty. Is it so far out of the realm of possibility that they would pay a cop who's not so honest to be quiet while they did this? Mm, I, I, don't think it, I don't think so. They knew about the secret door in the Dutch room. They Remember I told you, I think for me, this is one of the biggest. The, the door that they came in was called the man trap type door. If they failed to convince either one of the guards that they were legitimate or that they should let themselves in, they would be stuck between the two doors and they would be caught. But their disguise worked to get them past two doors. So they were confident. They knew that the security there was pretty crappy. And they took two things with them. Remember, they went in, they went into the security director's office. So they had to know that this was there. They took the VHS tape with the, uh, you know, the video of them outside the museum. And they took the printout from the inkjet printer with all the, the times that the alarm went off. So how did they know to go in there, that those things would be in there? And fortunately for us, and unfortunately for them, the alarm system had a backup that even if you took the tape, it still backed it up on the hard drive of the computer. So the police did see the, uh, the video and the same with the printout that was still saved onto a hard drive. But my point is to even know that that stuff existed, it, it, you almost certainly have to either work there or at least know somebody who does. Because how else do you know to go in that room and get that stuff? Now, will they ever be caught? I don't think so because I think they're dead. You know, I think the FBI got it right. That was Merlina was the mastermind and the, the two um, Reisfelder and Demuzio were involved. Um, they're dead, and even if that guy Charles Pappas was involved, he's dead too. So uh, everybody's dead. And do I think the, the art will ever be found? I actually do. It's got to be somewhere. Somebody has to know where it is. And 30 years have gone by. It's probably in, in an attic or a basement or it's probably going to be one of those instance, instances where like so many years later, somebody buys an old house and they're going through it and they're like, oh, I just found a cool painting in the attic. Something like that. Just somebody happens upon it at a, maybe a flea market and, and they have no idea what it is or what it's worth. There have been some changes at the museum. Fortunately, <laughs> the guards now have extensive background checks. They get training. The museum has theft insurance and they have more advanced security. They have fancy cameras with night vision, infrared, and thermal, all of which are, are cool. So they did learn their lesson the hard way. And they have, I have some pictures of them. They left the um, the empty frames hanging exactly as they were as a, they say it's like a sign of hope. Like we think that these paintings will come back someday. And um, a lot of people who worked at the museum were really, I guess traumatized is the word by this. Rick and, well, obviously Rick and Randy were because they were tied up. And that's another thing people were picking on Rick. They said, you know, he was just kind of like, meh, you know. And this other poor dude, this Randy, he was really 
traumatized, like he had PTSD. And I'm like, really? That one person has PTSD and the other one's not too bothered and you're going to use that as proof that one was involved? That's ridiculous. Everybody reacts to things different. You can have two people go through the exact same experience. One might be totally traumatized. The other one might not be too bothered. That's just the way people are. You know, that that's human nature. Everybody reacts to things differently. A lot of administrators and people were very upset about the loss of these treasures. And somebody called the crime barbaric. Well, I just thought, well, um, you know, I've, I've covered a lot of We've talked about a lot of crime here. Cassie Hansen, who we just talked about, you know, the little girl who was abducted from a church and sexually assaulted and strangled and dumped. That's barbaric. And uh, Dr. Christopher Dunch, that scumbag who operated on people and purposefully mutilated them and killed a couple. That's barbaric. Out of all the crimes I've talked about, read about, or seen in my own career, I don't mean to sound crass, but I would, or insensitive, but I would have to put this one kind of low on the barbaric scale. I'm just saying. But I promised everybody that I would tell you specifically about the art that was stolen, if you're interested. But before that, I have a big announcement. It seems like just a couple months ago that I hit a thousand downloads. Remember when I, I did the live show to celebrate a thousand downloads? Well, I now have, are you ready for it? Hold on to your seats. 5,000 downloads. Thank you everybody for listening. I'm so appreciative of everybody around the world. The list keeps growing. Thank you for listening and for sharing on social media, for telling your friends. It means so much. I think I'm getting better. I have teeth now. I think I'm learning how to, to talk with them. Um, I keep getting better equipment. I keep trying different things as far as noise reduction, you know, as, as far as audio. Always trying to improve as, as much as I can. So, okay, it's art history time. We already know that a few of the paintings that were taken, taken were by Rembrandt. So I'll tell you a little bit about Rembrandt. He was Dutch. He was born in the town of Leiden in the Netherlands in 1606. His full name was Rembrandt van Rijn, but he mainly went by his first name, Rembrandt, like Madonna or Cher. He was an only child. His painting career took off after he moved to Amsterdam. He, he soon became the most experienced and sought-after painter in the area. He painted a lot of biblical scenes and history, and he was a painter, printmaker, and draftsman. He was married to a, a woman named Saskia, from 1634 till 1642. She sadly died of tuberculosis. They had three kids. He died poor in October of 1669. He's noted for his realism and he had a thing about self-portraits. He painted over 90 of them and the one, one of the ones that was taken from the museum was a an early self-portrait of drawing. He is known to have painted over 600 paintings, which is a lot of paintings. The Rembrandts that were taken, if you remember, they went right for the big one, the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. This was an oil on canvas painted in 1633, and this would be what was called the Dutch Golden Age. It's the only seascape he ever painted. And it shows Jesus on a boat calming the waves and therefore saving the lives of the 14 of them who were in the boat. What I learned that's interesting is there really is a Sea of Galilee. And because it lies low in the Jordan Rift Valley, it gets sudden violent storms. So it really does look all tumultuous and dangerous like it does in the painting. It's worth a hundred million dollars. One of the other Rembrandts that was taken from that room is called A Lady and Gentleman in Black. It's also from 1633. It shows a well-dressed husband and wife, and it was probably his first double portrait, meaning more than, of more than one person. 
Really interestingly is that an x-ray of it showed that at one time there was a little kid painted in between the man and woman, but for whatever reason Rembrandt painted him out. So that's kind of did he think he did a, a sloppy job painting the kid and wasn't satisfied with it? I've done that a lot with my paintings. I don't mean to compare myself to Rembrandt, but, you know, I've done that. The etching or drawing that was taken was the portrait of the artist as a young man. And it was bought by Isabella Stewart Gardner in 1886 for $120. And this is the small one that the authorities said that they thought that it was strange that the thieves took so much time standing there to get the screws out of. That's all the Rembrandts. But they did take one by a student of Rembrandt. And it supposedly resembles a Rembrandt. And the thought is that possibly the thieves, without reading it any further, thought that it was a Rembrandt. Remember, some people think, myself included, that they were going after certain works of art by certain painters. This one is called Landscape with an Obelisk, and it was painted by Govert Flank, who was also one of the Dutch Golden Age painters. He lived from 1615 to 1660. He married a woman named Sophie in 1656. They had a son. His work was extremely similar to Rembrandt's, and a lot of times it was mistaken for Rembrandt's. People would buy something by Flink, thinking it was a Rembrandt, and I guess would be uh, surprised. This particular painting is, a, well, it's a landscape, and it has kind of a, like a spooky looking tree, and in the background, like kind of far away, you see a small obelisk. And it's an oil on wood. What's considered the biggest loss that was taken that day was the concert by Vermeer. And this portrayed a man and two women performing music. There was a woman sitting at a harpsichord. And there was a dude playing a lute and a woman singing. And in the background on the walls of the painting were two other paintings. It was painted in 1664, also during the Dutch Golden Age, and it's so rare because there are so few Vermeers in existence. It's actually considered the most valuable stolen object in the world. Isabella Stort Gardner got it at an auction in Paris in 1892. She paid $5,000 for it. Now, Johan Vermeer was, of course, Dutch. He lived from 1632 to 1675. He painted in what's called the Dutch Baroque period. He specialized in domestic interior scenes of middle-class life. He married a woman named Katharina, and they had 15 kids. So they were busy, but four would die as babies. He only painted 50 things. I guess he was too busy making babies, only of which about 34 are known to survive. His most famous painting, which you've probably seen, is called Girl with a Pearl Earring. And the other object that was taken from the Dutch room was the bronze Chinese goo. And this was from the 12th century. A goo is a type of ritual bronze vessel from either the Shang or Zhao dynasty. It's used to drink wine in, in a ceremony. So just basically, it's just like a wine glass. So next, the thieves went into the short gallery. And from there, they took several works by Edgar Degas. He was a French Impressionist noted for his oil paints and pastel drawings. And over half of his works depict dancers, mainly ballet dancers. He also did bronze sculptures, prints, and drawings. He was born in 1834 in Paris, died in Paris in 1917. He never married or had any kids. And he was quite, from what I've read, um, I guess unlikable. He was a misogynist. He called ballerinas little monkey girls. And he equated women with racehorses. I'm not quite sure why. He was anti-Semitic. He came from a rich family. He was classically educated, Latin and Greek and ancient history. He 
has a total of about 625 works, and he was inspired by Edward Manet. One of the uh, paintings or drawings that was taken is called La Sortie de Passage, and that means leaving the paddock. It's a small watercolor and a pencil on paper. It's only four and one-eighth by six and five-sixteenth inches, so that's not very big. It shows two jockeys and horses lining up to be led onto a racetrack. And another thing that was taken was Cortege au Environ de Florence. That means processions on a road near Florence. This is a pencil and sepia wash on paper and it's like kind of brownish it just looks like a like a pencil drawing it was drawn between 1857 and 1860 it's his earliest horse image and it shows a couple horses pulling a carriage and you can see the city of florence in a dis in the distance they took two almost identical things and they're called programs for an artistic soiree or Programme de la Soirée des Enchants Élèves du Lycée de Nantes. These were drawn in 1844. They're black chalk on paper. They're pretty um, plain, rudimentary, and they look like they're unfinished. They show like part of a dancing couple and some smokestacks. They're weird. I have a picture of one of them on my social media and they're just uh, definitely not something that I would want hanging on my wall. And finally, another Degas they took from that room. It's called Three Mounted Jockeys. It's a large unfinished ink drawing, and it's dated between 1885 and 88. It shows a jockey sitting on a horse, and it's not finished, and you can tell. The other thing they took was the bronze eagle finial, and the picture shows it how it originally was. It was attached to a flag. It was bought in 1880 with the flag finial through a New York City art and antiquity dealer, and the flag is that of the first regiment of Napoleon's Imperial Guard. So they apparently wanted the whole thing, they tried to unscrew the frame flag, but they gave up and just took the finial. The last thing taken was the mysterious, well, there's nothing mysterious about the painting, but what's mysterious is how, how it was taken, and that would be Chez Tortoni by Manet. Manet, Edward Manet was a French modernist painter. He was considered um, like in between realism and impressionism. He lived between 1832 and 1883. He was uh, born in Paris, died in Paris, and he has about 430 oil paintings, about 89 pastels. He was married to a woman named Suzanne, and his most noted work is probably called The Luncheon on the Grass because it was um, risque, and it's a weird painting. It shows people there's four of them and they're having a picnic they have a picnic basket so that they're sitting on the grass there's two dudes and they're dressed to the nines they have on top hats and three-piece suits and the woman is butt naked it's it's just weird and in the background there's like a little creek or pond or something and there's another woman i think she's like swimming or something it's it's strange but Shea Tortoni, it was painted in 1875, oil on canvas. It shows a dude in a top hat sitting at a table at the Cafe Tortoni de Paris. And he's supposedly drawing on a sketch pad, and he has a half-empty glass of beer sitting beside him. That was bought by a friend of Isabella at an auction in Paris in 1922. So... That's all the stolen works. If you happen to come across any of them, um, remember all the statute of statutes of limitations have expired, but so has the reward. But let somebody know about them if you happen to see any. And um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week coming up, it's definitely going to be at least a two-parter. It might even be a bigger one. 
but I have a very, very important case. And the reason it's so important is because uh, I think I've mentioned a couple times about my dissertation, which is about multiple perpetrator homicides. Well, I tried to think of which case in my dissertation could I talk about that best and easiest describes the um, act of one person falling into another's influence. Like, uh, which case that I know of illustrates this the best? So if I was going to teach a class and I'm like, oh, it's got to be this one. And it's a serial killing couple. I won't. Uh, I will tell you that, but I won't tell you who. But it's it's very important because I'm going to lay the foundation for future cases in which I use sociology and psychology to reference how people in groups of two or more are able to do things that they most likely couldn't by themselves. So please don't miss, if you can, next week. Okay, I will see everybody next week. Class dismissed.